0: Good morning, afternoon, or evening. We are back, Bostopian News, with Evan George to go through the saga that was Boston's redistricting for 2022. I, like many of you, have been closely following along for at least the past few months, ever since Ed Flynn removed Ricardo Arroyo as chair of redistricting, and yes, we are going to talk about that because I think that is very important context to unfold about everything that occurred afterwards, and rather than trying to do quick podcasts to update all the twists and turns, I figured I'll wait till it's all over, we'll just do one long overarching arc, what happened, why did it happen, why does the new map look the way that it does, and what does it mean for the future? But to tell the story, again, we have to go back to the DA race with Kevin Hayden versus Ricardo Arroyo. I am not at all going to re-litigate or open up that entire thing, go back and listen to my most recent podcast for more thoughts on how that ended. But if we were to review Boston politics on a pendulum, which I hate the pendulum analysis of political ideology and history, but let's just use it for now. We saw progressives with massive wins throughout the city of Boston. With Wu's election, some of the more progressive reforms in terms of the powers of the Boston City Council, and with an overall, we'll call it left leaning council being elected. Then we saw the return of the conservatives. I'm not going to go through the Massachusetts Democratic primaries. You can lump that in there with this if you want. Sure, we're focused on Boston. But what we did see was the conservative forces unified in the special election for DA, and were victorious. And this began on the Boston City Council, even though I'm sure they had some heads up and it involvement with the Globe's release, the pressure on Ricardo Arroyo himself, the pressure on people who endorsed him. But on August 29th, 2022, a letter was submitted to the city clerk of the city of Boston, Reading as such, Dear Mr. Clerk, In what I believe to be in the best interest of the Boston City Council as a legislative body, I have decided to temporarily readjust committee assignments for the next 60 days. Keep that number in the back of your head. At that time, I will reassess this decision with all available information. Please find and close the revised City Council Committee's listings. If you have any questions, please feel free to contact me at 617-635-3203 or at Ed Flynn at Boston.gov. Sincerely, Ed Flynn. And that was basically the letter that removed Ricardo from being the chair of redistricting. And this set off alarm bells throughout the city of Boston, myself included, when I started to consider, oh, this is really the prize. Because while I'm sure this move had two different motivations. One was in the short term to damage Ricardo Arroyo's chance for election, but the second was to get someone in there who would be easier to coerce, who would be easier to pull in the direction of a more favorable map for conservatives, or at least to get a better outcome than they would have under Ricardo Arroyo. And with that, we have the vice chair, Liz Braden, resume control. And though the conservatives were, again, successful in that effort, I think it was phrased, on September 7th, that was the date of the special election, they effed around, and on November 2nd, they found out. Basically meaning we see the pendulum now go the other way, and we see the more progressive elements being able to work together to get what is a very favorable map for the next 10 years. Now, I always criticize journalists when they use the word progressive because there is no agreed upon term or usage of that. There's a couple of policies that, to me, you have to agree with to even come close to credibly saying that label, mostly around Green New Deal and around a Medicare for All system. But those are easier at the nationwide level to look at and label. I also like my personal definition that a progressive is merely a Democrat that you like and everyone uses the word as they see fit. But I'm basically going to use it interchangeably with liberal as just everything left of center. Though many of the people that I'm putting that label on do also have center-right positions, particularly around economics. But again, I'll get lost in minutiae if I try to untangle all that on one podcast. Okay, so how did the progressives achieve this? What was the timeline? Well, shortly after that Suffolk DA election, the Boston City Council had to grapple with massive population changes within the city of Boston. And what some describe as a self-imposed deadline of November 8th, though I think it is a very necessarily concrete deadline, but we'll discuss that difference in a little bit. Now these population changes, being reflective of the most recent census, the goal is to have approximately 75,000 people in each of the nine districts. Now, I think that is way too much for one city councilor. I think we need to, at a minimum, triple the amount of city councilors, and that's not going to happen anytime soon. The current system that we have with the nine districts and the four at large was created in 1983, not too long ago. But again, I don't see that changing anytime soon, though it desperately should. But what we needed to jumble around was primarily two big shifts within District 2 and District 3. District 2 being Ed Flynn's district, two covering South Boston, the seaport, downtown, Chinatown, grew by more than 14,000 residents. I think there was one estimate that that equals about 10,000 voters. Meanwhile, District 3, to itself, which covers a little bit of the South End, but predominantly all of Eastern Dorchester, City Councilor Frank Baker, also my district, lost roughly 6,500 people over the last decade, which in my best guess is strictly due to displacement, strictly due to over that 10-year period, rents skyrocketing, forcing people and families to leave their homes. And for really the rest of this podcast and for how it ended up unfolding, this was really the dynamic of how can we cut pieces out of District 2 in a way and then rearrange District 3 to ensure that District 3, in some of the language, is called an opportunity district, but how can we make it so that Ed Flynn and Frank Baker through this process that we have to do because of the changes in the population, have a harder time being re-elected. Now, this might be more of a comment that I saved to the end, but I think this audience knows this, that this entire process that every legislative body has to do every decade, strictly because it is done by the lawmakers themselves, are focused around two key principles. One is incumbency, to protect yourself. You want to draw the district in a way, whether that is you absorbing certain precincts, whether that is you releasing certain precincts, that give you the most favorable voter base. And it's very easy to figure out what is and is not a favorable voter base, because you can look back on the previous elections, see where did you get the most votes, where did your opposition get the most votes, the most recent election, who in the most ideologically consistently aligned with you. Did well here, who did worse there, and you can just take a knife and carve it up. And if you ever want to read a really great book on how the Republican Party has used this strategy so successfully, curse word incoming, it's called Operation Ratfucked, or the book itself might just be called Ratfucked, but this is done all over the place. So that's number one, incumbency, protect yourself. And number two, as a little bit of an added bonus, you can screw over your ideological rivals in the hopes that they get knocked out, because everyone here knows the power of incumbency. We have the least competitive elections in the country. And when you introduce new precincts or you remove precincts that were favorable to the incumbent, then the incumbent just doesn't have exposure and name recognition in those areas like they normally do. They don't know the networks. They don't know the neighborhood ties as well as they normally would for a precinct that's been there for decades. And it's just a lot easier to find someone to knock them off. And that is ultimately what this was also all about. We can pretty that up in any language that we want to, but ultimately, that is the game. And if politics and your understanding of it is truly that politics is about power and the reallocation of resources in our society, and who does government favor and who does it not, it is okay to state something like that outright, even though I understand that as politicians, they're not able to be as forthcoming as I, a TikTok slash podcaster slash volunteer. Now, that we had Liz Braden as chair, by about September 26th, so now this is, I don't know, two weeks after the Suffolk DA's uh, election is over, we saw two different maps emerge. One was from Liz Braden herself. And the second, and this was incredibly clever, I want to talk about it for a little, little bit, Ricardo Arroyo and Tanya Fernandez Anderson. And why I'm saying that's so clever. Because, you know, I made my statements about Ricardo pretty clear. Uh, Again, go back and listen to the last episode. He's definitely a smart guy. And I just love the move of he is removed by Ed Flynn as the chair of redistricting. And then he says, basically, oh, F you. I'm just going to submit my own map anyway. Basically signaling that I have been working on this this whole time for people who said that I was too distracted. And that I am going to be a force in redistricting, regardless of my title as chair or not. Very good. Very smart. Great politics. And I'm not going to go into the differences between those two maps that we ended up seeing from Liz Bredin, that we ended up seeing from Tanya Fernandez-Anderson and Ricardo Arroyo, because shortly after, we had the Unity map. And on October 18th, on the steps of City Hall, we had... Liz Braden, Cato Arroyo, Julia Mejia, surrounded by prominent organizers throughout Boston, joining together, listening to the words of the NAACP Boston President, Tanisha Sullivan, I'll read you her quote, each time is an opportunity for us to move our city forward to ensure that we're doing all we can here in the city of Boston to be exemplary in protecting and advancing voting rights and ensuring that as our city evolves, all voices are heard. And this map, which came out of a public meeting that the NAACP held the week previously, and again as a merging with from NAACP, Ricardo Arroyo, Liz Breden, other forces, came together with this map. And what it did was very aggressively go after District two and district three, because, again, as I stated earlier, something was going to have to change with those districts regardless. And there are ways of doing it which helped conservatives. There are ways that doing it that slightly hurt them and not too bad, And there are ways that you could have done it to really just target those two districts. But again, there was always a cost when doing it because you can't just simply take, take, take. You need to balance out the other districts as well. And that map, which was not the final map that we ended up getting, took significant pieces of Southeast South Boston away from D2, bringing that into D3, but then greatly expanded D3 into the Codman Square area, and then simultaneously kicking out the Southern precincts of Dorchester and bring that over to D4. And I know that's a lot of math and it's not worth going too much into what those details would have looked like because it does not reflect the overall map we ended up getting, though this was really the starting point for the map we ended up getting. But what it ultimately would have done is remove some of the white conservatives out of D2 because again, If you are Ed Flynn, and those white conservatives are your base, and you have to shed some precincts, you would want to shed the precincts that aren't your base. You would want to shed the precincts that vote more progressive. And so by removing and cutting off those parts of South Boston, you do diminish the political power of South Boston, and again, by extension, remove very favorable areas out of D2, but you do put those in D3 which, again, for some of you might sound counterintuitive. Oh, what doesn't that help Frank Baker? It does, but the number, the overall voters that you're adding to D3 from that white conservative area, you are going to lose a lot more in that transition of those southern precincts that are also white conservative areas and part of Frank Baker's base. And so in the overall positive minus net gain Ed Flynn loses white conservatives, and Frank Baker loses white conservatives. And where did those southern white conservatives go? They went to D4. And this was one of the major tension points that we're going to talk through. Because not only did D3, again, expand a little Western, bringing in more people of color, again, the Cotton Square area, some others, you know, along that dot-av line, that is then removing people of color out of D4, bringing them into D3, while simultaneously replacing them with white conservatives. And now District 4, as it has been for again the past decade, is overwhelmingly a black district. And I believe it is, or at least was, 8% white. So the previous status quo, District 4, 83% black and Hispanic. District 3, a little more mixed, but still with white with their plurality. District two, overwhelmingly white, almost 70%. But now looking back at district four, because of the very high black population, there were some conversations around, does this count as packing, which is a gerrymandering strategy of primarily taking one racial group, drawing the line so that they're all in the one district, So it somewhat guarantees at least one seat. But again, in a 13-member body or a nine-district body, you can pack some groups so that when you actually have the full council, it diminishes their power because they're only going to be one vote. Again, that's just like an overarching principle of what's called packing. So there was some people expressing the concern that that could be in violation of the Voters' Rights Act. I think it's a little silly to think that we're going to see any legitimate challenges to the Voters' Rights Act in a way that protects black power. Everything that we've been seeing for the past 20 years is going the other way. The Voting Rights Act is being dismantled. I don't think there was any chance of us getting a lawsuit if we repassed the same exact lines that we did 10 years ago. But again, that's why I try to go past those types of arguments, because I just fully believe that it is at its core an incumbency in an ideological balance of power. That's what we're really fighting about. We can use the language that we need to. But that dynamic of adding more white conservatives into District 4, though I do not believe for a moment it actually would have threatened Brian Wall's seat or threatened District 4 in terms of a district which is represented since its conception by a person of color. And actually, I can tell you what those percentages would have been. So as stated previously, District 4 had only 8% white if the unity map passed or at least the form that i was shown that would have now gone from 8% to 14.8%. So not at all a significant jump in percentage. The black population as a percentage would have decreased from 61.6% down to 49.3% and the hispanic population would have risen slightly from 20.7 to 23.4. But again, and I know he was worried about it, going from 8% to 15% white to me would not have really constituted any sort of legitimate threat. Though again, I think his fear does continue to highlight what I really just want to drill into the audience, which is this is about incumbency protection. You don't want any voters that are going to be hostile to you. Everything is viewed as a threat. Everything is viewed through the prism of each individual representative doing what is best for themselves. And that is not me making a moral judgment against Brian Worrell. That is me holding that same standard and judgment for all of the councillors. And these numbers did scare Brian Worrell to the point where he was against the unity map. And this is really the first tactic that we saw the conservatives use. Is how can we defeat this map, particularly one that is designed by the NAACP, supported by almost all of the councils of color, the ones who are in open opposition to it, are the four white conservatives. How can we do this in a way that doesn't make it look exactly as racial as it is? We can scare Brian Worrell to voting against this publicly, to speaking about this publicly, because that will then be used as a shield against any accusations of racism. And for this point, I have two different tactics that they used to, again, continue to scare Brian Worrell. And one is to directly affirm that fear, to have people speak publicly saying, you know, Brian Worrell, you should be really worried what they're trying to do to you. And for that, we get to hear the first of two video, or at least for you, audio installments from this woman, former Boston city councilor representing Dorchester, I believe District 3, from 1994 to 2011, who then did not seek re election, leading to the election of Frank Baker, because she wanted a position as the city clerk, who recently retired. Yes, I am talking about Maureen Feeney. And I am not going to do a deep dive about her right now. Maybe that'll pique my interest at another time, because. As I said, there are two incredible pieces of audio that I have from this woman, and she retired at the beginning of this year. I'm just going to read you the first lines from her retirement, because she did get a lot of press. This was written up by Saria Wintersmith, January 24, 2022, WGBH. Boston city clerk and former city council member Maureen Feeney is as down-to-earth as your favorite aunt and as savvy as any political sharpie. That rare blend of talents has won her widespread respect during the 34 years she has worked in City Hall. Keep that in mind. Let's listen to her statement. This is speaking out against the Unity map. During a redistricting meeting, I believe that did take place in Dorchester. This is on October 20th. And I'm really just going to play you the ending of her speech. She basically talks about her family is from here, and she talks about how she was involved in the construction of the Vietnam Aid Center that's on Charles Street. But here we go.
1: So I know that this is the most challenging. I did redistricting in two thousand two. A lot has happened since two thousand two. But the fact of the matter is, don't take power from one neighborhood to give it to another neighborhood. It should be shared. And I'll be honest with you, some of these maps, I fear for our good counselor from district four, because I'm not sure that is really an opportunity for someone. I think that district, which has been so proudly represented by people of color, I'm not sure if some of these maps are accepted, that that will be the case. He deserves better than that. He's worked hard to get here.
0: So you heard it there, loud and clear, deliberately, directly saying, you should be afraid. Again, this is somebody who has spent 30 years in some capacity on or with the city council. She has friends there. She knows where counselors are leaning, what their fears are, and how to push them in those directions. Deliberately really saying that, hey, if you add these white conservatives, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen. Now, in the best faith, she's talking about electorally, politically. But you really just can't escape the overall racial element of this and basically saying that, hey, like, do you want like these white people To be knocking on your door? Like, do you think that's going to work well for you? I don't know. I don't know if you want that. It's so hard to remove that subtext. But Ricardo actually has an incredible answer to this.
2: And so I'm going to play you that as well. District 4, which is a legacy black district, maintains the largest percentage of black population, and it's not close, in the city. Maintains the lowest population that is white in the city by almost 10%. We're talking about an 85% person of color district in District 4. And it hurts my heart to hear counselors, former counselors, talk about that Ward 16 coming in there and talking about fearing for counselors because it perceives and creates and insinuates and implies that Ward 16 wouldn't vote for black counselors or wouldn't vote for people of color. I don't know what else there is to be afraid of in the context of that conversation, because these are our neighbors. These are good communities. These are folks who I've heard have come together time and time again. And to raise this harbinger that, oh, if you put Ward 16 into District 4, that's the end of black unity and black leadership. I just don't believe that of Ward 16. I don't believe that of our communities. And I think it does us a disservice when we talk about it in that way.
0: Just an incredible answer. Delicious pitch. I'm glad he made a little note of it because he made that statement. I don't know how much time had passed, but it wasn't directly afterwards. Great pitch to hit because what's the counter to that? I mean, just kind of laying it out there. Like, what are you really insinuating by comments like Brian Worrell should be afraid? And then also when you look at the data, it's still the smallest percentage of white voters. So that was, you know, the first example of a tactic to scare Brian Worrell. The second was a text message that went out on, I believe, November 1st, night before the big vote. Begins, two exclamation points, Mattapan alert, another two exclamation points. All caps, notice, tomorrow, Boston City Council is about to split Mattapan in half under a redistricting map. Please call Councilor Brian Worrell at 617-635-3131 and tell him to vote against dividing Battapan, Then with, reply stop to opt out. And up until the time of this recording, November 6th, I still don't know who paid for that message, but I do know that it resulted in an avalanche of phone calls to Worrell's office of people basically saying, what is going on? Vote no. I just got this crazy message. And though, again, we don't know who sent it, it is just part of the greater element of the conservative forces using the strategy to scare Brian Worrell. And again, I believe this went out in early November. So like the night before is kind of one little Hail Mary attempt. Though up to that point, the map that they would be voting on changed. Because as I mentioned before, the unity map did change in some capacities, most particularly for Brian Worrell, that Codman Square area. And the reason that that Again, rather than having some of it be in D3, some of it being in D4, the reason ultimately that it ended up just going back to staying in D4, you can say it was part of an appeasement to Brian Worrell, a way of, you know, swaying his fears. I was hearing tangentially that because the other eight counselors had the vote to pass it, that there was some talks of, hey, Brian Worrell doesn't want to go along with it. He wants to vote no, let him vote no. We have the votes anyway. You know, but it's hard for me to detach giving him this as part of that strategy to get him on board. Because again, it weakens the conservatives and makes them look bad. But also I know that there was pushback from some of the left community groups in Boston who wanted to see Common Square stay united. And I believe these were parts of like groups like Right to the City, New England United for Just, Justice, etc. So a combination of those two factors ended up going back. So tactic one failed. Scare Brian Worrell. He ended up voting yes. Tactic two they tried was to use affordable housing projects in Southie that when you then accepted some of the new precincts, split them up. I'll read... Ed Flynn's statement that he released November 1st about why he would be voting no, but also him calling for a blue ribbon commission, because another big element of this is delaying. And I'll talk about that one next. But here's his quote on affordable housing. It feels classist to me that we would ignore the wishes of public housing neighbors and remove from them representation within the communities they reside. I fail to see how dividing neighborhoods, public housing developments, and communities of color is in the best interest of the city of Boston. In the two public housing developments under consideration, or that was under debate, we'll call it, one was the Anne M. Lynch homes at Old Colony and the West Broadway and West Ninth Street complexes, which Previously, we're all in district two. And them saying, Flynn using the word, unconscionable. When people are trying to dismantle my district and eliminate public housing out of my district, I take that personally. That is a quote written up in a Globe article by Emma Platoff and Alexander Thompson. This was on October 18th. So they went with the affordable housing just about until the end. And to that I say that there are roughly, I think, 54 public housing complexes that are under the ownership of the Boston Housing Authority throughout Boston. It's either 52 or 54. I think 54. And the idea that we cannot, for some reason, let these two developments be in two different districts when all of the other over 50 are all spread over the city, all in different districts, is absurd. And is, of course, just grasping at straws to maintain those precincts in the areas where Flynn wants them to be. So that's a quick one. And they continue to ride affordable housing. But now let's talk about the delaying. And, you know, we see the strategy always. And maybe now is a good time. And I'm going to emphasize this on a later strategy they, they used. I'm not against any of the tactics that were deployed by the conservatives. I'm not against scaring or pressuring city councilors to vote your way. I'm not against using elements or wedged points to break apart the coalitions that are opposing you. I'm not against, and here's the third one I want to talk about, delaying. And so my criticism is always because I do not want to live in the world that they wish to live in. That I am ideologically opposed to what the conservatives, not just in this country or world, but in Boston, want for the city of Boston. I think it is a colder, darker, meaner vision of humanity that they want to bestow some ladder of hierarchy that they imagine they'll sit atop of. But anyway, delaying. And this is now when we get to talk about the deadline of November 8th, because technically, there is no statute or anything in the charter that says this must be done by November 8th, or this must be done by the next upcoming election cycle. And I think Actually, the only legal requirement is that this gets done until maybe 2026. That's what Ed Flynn said, and I have no reason to say that he was making that up. But the reason that that deadline of November 8th was so important, and the reason that Ed Flynn and Frank Baker were trying to delay, and of course the other conservatives as well on their behalf, is because there is something written. I don't think it's in our charter. Maybe it is. But it's certainly in our election law that you must reside in the district that you are running in for a year, which means that when there are new precincts added to District 3, that if somebody resided in one of those districts and then wanted to run for office, they have to have been living in District 3 for a year. But if you delayed it past what is, I think, going to be November 7th, because the next election is November 7th of 2023, then that blocks any new people from challenging you. Because again, these are going to be new precincts with new people, new community groups, new neighbors that the incumbents don't have the same leverage, pull, and knowledge of. So they, at a minimum, want to delay it past that deadline to make sure that no one new enters to challenge them. And this is what, no big surprise the editorial board of the Boston Globe got so fundamentally wrong in their piece that was published on October 27th, titled Don't Rush into a New Redistricting Plan. It's And this is the subtitle. It's more important for the Boston City Council to produce new electoral maps that reflect community needs and withstand legal challenges than to meet an artificial November 7th deadline. And we'll talk about the legal challenges because that is, I believe, still going on. And here's how they describe it, because they have it literally completely backwards. I'll read you the quote. Quote, Indeed, the supposed deadline of November 7th mostly serves to protect the incumbent councillors themselves. That's because under the city charter, candidates for city council need to live in the district for a full year to run for a district council office. And if the redistricting results in any incumbent councillors living in the same new districts as colleagues... They want time to establish residency in a new part of the city. So what they are saying is that the council pushing to get this done before November 7th are actually doing this to protect themselves. Because if you drew the boundaries a certain way, you could take two sitting councilors, put them in the same district, and then the one that I guess theoretically if it happened too late, now wouldn't be able to run the new district they reside in. So like, for example, if you took the actual physical addresses of the counselor who live, I'll just say, District 1 and District 2, and then I redraw the map so that now District Two's counselor, Ed Flynn, lives within the new boundaries of District 1, and if you wait until after the November 7th deadline, now Ed Flynn couldn't run for office challenging Gabriella. And the fundamental thing that they get so wrong about that is, one, the new map doesn't do that. The new map does not exclude or remove any actual city councilor's home address and puts them in a new district. So it's a completely made-up situation. But again, they completely miss that. It's actually the opposite, is that the move to delay protects incumbency, not the move to get it done. If that situation were real, the one that they're describing, that they drew two counselors' physical addresses within the same district, then yes, that that would then be a very credible argument to say that you're doing this to screw over politician X. But that's not what was happening. That was literally never on the table to begin with. So to insinuate that they're only doing this for that motivation is looney tunes. It just doesn't exist in reality. But of course, they don't explain that. They just say... They're doing it to help them, when in reality, it's the exact opposite. But anyway, another massively deceiving and disingenuous scare tactic from the Boston Globe's editorial board. No big surprise. And now the next strategy, lawsuits. Again, fully support using lawsuits as a delay tactic, or to get what you want, even though of course, the judiciary is no friend of the left, because they were originally going to vote on this map, not when they did, November 2nd, but the week previously. And this was successful, again, bought the conservatives another week because they decided not to vote on it because of a lawsuit that was brought against them. So this was reported by Sean Phillip Carter, who did an excellent job covering this process, as he always does, does a great job covering the Boston City Council, on October 25th, quote, A group of South Boston civic organizations has filed an open meeting law complaint against the city council as neighborhood groups leery of the body splitting up Southie vie for more public hearings. The coalition, which includes South Boston Ward 6 Democratic Committee, South Boston Citizens Association, Martin F. McDonough American Legion Post, St. Vincent's Lower End Neighborhood Association, and Old Colony Tenant Association. Basically saying that under three different instances, one was October 10th, one was October 18th, one was October 19th, the Boston city councilors met without sufficient public notice. Because there is a law or a statute, call or whatever, that if a certain number of Boston city councilors are all together, then that kind of officially counts as a hearing because maybe they have a quorum and any hearing that has a quorum needed to at least have public notice beforehand. However, the instances that they're citing are things like a group of them got outside together at City Hall for a press conference. That does not meet the legal requirement that that statute pertains to. But again, it's a delay tactic. It's very useful. And it successfully scared, I don't know if it was directly her decision, but since she's in charge of the process, I'll put it on her, was Braden into bringing this up for a vote week previous. And when they eventually did vote on this on November 2nd, I'm going to read you a piece from WGBH, Sahara Wintersmith, November 2nd, that described, you know, kind of what happened in this process. Quote, the vote came hours after a state court judge denied a same day request for a temporary restraining order to bar the council from voting on a new district map. Basically, they wanted to stop the Boston City Council from being allowed to take this vote. They asked for a judge to intervene to institute a restraining order on the Boston City Council to stop them from doing this, and the judge refused to do it. The suit was filed by Robert O'Shea, chair of Boston Ward 6 Democratic Committee in South Boston, with the help of Paul Gannon, an attorney and a former South Boston state representative. And I believe I remember reading that the court was supposed to make a decision on this on Friday. However, I'm now looking at another piece. By Sean Philip Carter, this would have been that same day on that Wednesday, November 2nd, which ends with the judge did set an expedited hearing for next Wednesday through the city lawyers in a letter to the council, whether they intend on seeking for that to be moved up even further. So, I mean, to my knowledge, that there has been no change since and it's possible within the coming week. We will see a court decision on it. And of course, it's the courts. So it's all going to depend on what judge do you get. If you get some right wing nut with a gavel, they can say whatever they want and interpret whatever law, whatever way they want, then it goes to appeal and this process just gets drawn out. So that's the way it works. All right, so those were a lot of the smaller, more intricate tactics they had, the delaying, the lawsuits, affordable housing. Now I can get you back to the good stuff, the things that I know you already know about but you want to hear. Their tactics around the parishes, Catholicism versus Protestantism, and the tactic to bully Liz, Breden, and of course those are all intermeshed and culminated. And yes, I will play the audio of that climax, but you're gonna have to have some more vegetables first. All right. So these parishes, the first time we saw this starting to be implemented was during one of the redistricting meetings on October 11th where Coalition from Dorchester, the ones that, again, were going to be moved to District 4, and that did end up happening, though I think not as many districts as originally planned. Again, we're going to get through that right at the end, what actually did happen. And they showed up in these white t-shirts that had the names and the churches of the parishes on the back, basically arguing that these new maps are going to put parishes half in one district, half in the other. And we're going to go back to our new friend, Maureen Feeney, who spoke out in support of this tactic, while draping the white shirt over her clothing. And just like before, we're jumping in mid-Reyes, because we don't got that kind of time.
1: As you know, equal population, compact districts, contiguous boundaries, and preservation of neighborhoods and communities of interest are also among other necessary considerations. Since its creation in 1983, I think sometimes we forget that these districts were only created such a short time before, that was the first. Time the district um, had been cre- the districts had been created nine districts, um, but in District 3's Southwest border marked a clear and clean political boundary, which, as you know, is a principle of redistricting. Unlike some other cities in the center of the city, District Three has several intractable boundaries, such as the Atlantic Ocean, the Neponset River. Um, The city of Quincy, the city of Milton, train tracks, and other clearly defined boundaries, such as ward committees, civic associations, and parishes. I know you're not supposed to have any signs on. Um, But in reviewing the map, I have grave concern that the recommended changes to District 3, especially precincts 8 and 11, will tear apart the very fabric of that community without any corresponding benefits. I respectfully request your reconsideration of such dramatic changes to the Dorchester community. I thank you for your time and consideration and the opportunity to share our concerns. I would just add one little... Well, I won't get emotional, but... um, 16.8 is also the home of the Richards family, Martin Richards. And, and, um, you know, obviously, not just Dorchester, but everyone came together after the bombing. But there was a history before all of that that made this community of Dorchester hold on to each other so dearly.
0: So uh, I'm just going to cut her off there. Um, She goes on to tell some story about the MBTA. Bringing up... Martin Richard, who was the eight-year-old who died at the Boston Marathon bombing, bringing that up in the context of selling your argument of a redistricting hearing of where do you want to stay in terms of who your Boston city councilors is, is somewhere between inappropriate and despicable. Now, I don't know her connection with that family. So it's very possible that she had the blessing to say that, in which case I retract that statement or I don't know if she had a personal enough connection to that child that you can take ownership of it as part of your own story and then use that to sell your context. If either of those things are true, I retract that statement. But if that isn't true, to bring that up as part of an emotional manipulation for an argument is very disgusting. But now we still have to backtrack and talk about the other two things because this is all in the context of the parishes. But before I hit that, she was talking about the boundaries of the area. And she listed a whole host of them, some like natural boundaries, like rivers. And I mean, it doesn't pertain here, but like mountains, right? When we make our charts, when we make our graphs, the powers that be, you will do take into account territorial boundaries, natural boundaries. She mentioned like the cities of Quincy are right there. Okay, obviously, we're not going to extend a Boston City Council district into another sovereignty. Those two things make sense. And then she says railroads, and she uses that almost in the context of like, you know, these things that just exist in nature, apart from political input, where no, 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 railroad construction, highway construction is and was deeply politicized, and it is used purposefully to cut and carve certain communities. So using it in this context, again trying to say like oh just it just got there. It's like a river, it's just natural. It's just comical because and I'm assuming she knows the history of all that. Those things aren't done by accident. And the idea that we need to respect those train tracks, those highways that were intentionally designed to segregate, to split apart is ludicrous. And then she goes into like the committees and of course ends with parishes. And the concept that we need to maintain what were, I believe, done by the Archdiocese of Boston decades and decades ago of if you live in this area, this is the church you go to. If you live in this, that area, these are the ones you go to. I mean, Dorchester Reporter had an editorial, quote, parish boundaries should not factor into political maps by Bill Fari. And he goes into the argument of saying – quote, the Archdiocese itself has closed or merged multiple parishes and churches in the last decade. He goes on to say the argument, quote, For one, most residents who live in 2022 Dorchester aren't Catholic churchgoers, including, by the way, many Catholics. (laughs) So the idea that because of the boundaries that were made by the Archdiocese of Boston have the same weight in consideration as like rivers is absurd and laughable and that argument very quickly got dismissed. Though I have to imagine that was one of the main motivations that had Frank Baker give his insanely bizarre, but also deliberately planned attack on Liz Brearden. So you're still going to look at the parishes as the framework of Catholicism versus Protestantism. But before we get to that, piece of audio, and of course, Liz Braden's rebuttal and remarks afterwards. Really that final strategy they used, and this can be traced all the way back to the beginning of this podcast and of this series, of the decision to remove Ricardo Arroyo was that Liz Braden was the vice chair. Liz Braden was the next person up. And while I still contend part of Ed Flynn's decision to remove Ricardo Arroyo was to damage him politically, you cannot separate that they thought it would be easier to get a more beneficial map under Liz Breden than Ricardo, because they thought that she could be bullied and pulled in their direction. And I can't find the exact quote, but I believe there was a Boston City Council hearing where Frank Baker accused Liz Breden of allowing herself to be bullied by the progressives. Maybe I'm making that up. That is somewhere in the back of my mind. Again, I would put that under conservative projection in terms of Frank Baker saying that, because they did think that they would be able to bully her, either by saying you're going to break up affordable housing, either saying you're in violation of the open meeting laws. And I'm just going to play you a quick little exchange that shows kind of the temperament and the tempo of how they were trying to put pressure on her to try to make her think we need more time, to try to make her think you're right, we're being unfair to, the, to these white conservatives. Listen to this exchange, and this is from October 25th. This is part two of one of their working sessions, which working sessions that doesn't have the public testimony part, but we get to listen in to them, have this debate and discussion and listen to this transaction between Liz Braden and Frank Baker.
3: My question again being if, if all those, if, if I was gracious, gracious enough to say, okay, keep the community together, move it wholly over to over to district four and then this is this is going to maybe South Boston this way, trying to respect the housing developments. Why is that not reflective here? I think, and, I think, and, and, and is is the is the committee involved in this at all, or who is this just all you making these decisions? Who's making the decisions? We this, how was it made?
4: I, I have to I have to say that this, this iteration we started off with the uh, the, the, the 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 docket is first right. five. And then we have this. This map. These maps have have points that have been raised, and those those precincts are under consideration.
3: So how come uh, my are, points? These, these... How come my points that were raised are not reflective here? I thought. I mean, just a little while ago, seven six. All this was was off the table. So I I said, okay, I'll go another way into South Boston. How come they're not reflective here? And is that you making the decision? Who made, okay, let's, let's say this then. Who made that decision to not have my changes in here, in, in my demographics here?
4: We printed out these because they're a step-by-step. I understand
3: step. what these are. The question is, how come the changes that I made are not in this packet?
4: We, your, your changes, we can pull them up on the, on the screen and with the, from district I ask- We're
3: voting on one of these here. This is what we're voting on. So how was the choice made to not have my changes in here? Was it made by you alone? And if so, why?
4: There's a, a range of different changes in this packet.
3: At least. I understand. We all made and, changes here and, today. And this, I saw, I sat through the changes, yeah. but I made changes myself that made quite a lot of sense. I thought they, the numbers were pretty good. District four went up to almost 15% black. That's what we're trying to do, right?
4: No, we're also trying to create an opportunity district in district three. To increase but doing effect, that, it's, increase. it's
3: increasing a white percentage in, in, in district four is what we've been we've been talking so about increase
4: here. the effectiveness of the opportunity of an opportunity district effectiveness for an opportunity district in district three is moving things around a little
0: a little and, wow
3: that's a little i would hate so we, to see what a lot is you know okay so can you I, answer I, the I, question how did how come my changes my map is not here we've got two you, other maps why is my map not part of this package because that tells me and, I, and we're not ready to vote, but but have the vote tomorrow, have at it, great. Um, why? This tells me that one of these two things here is what we're voting on. Where is mine? The,
4: the two areas. Of-
0: I'm going to pause that there. You get the idea. I'm going to show you the end of this exchange. Again, this is already the beginning of a part two. And so this is, I don't know how long this day was, but now this is at the end of this part two of this working session.
4: Councillor um, Baker, I, I'm really sorry to interrupt, but I really want to bring this hearing to a close. Are you kidding me? Yes, I'm serious. I'm in the, I'm in the middle of my statement. Yeah. Um, yeah, so when you're finished- Council
3: Flynn, I'd like to speak through the chair to Council Flynn that I have an earlier map that um, doesn't go in first order of business, cut cut out my lower my lower precincts. it retains your your borders it does, it isn't nearly as destructive as all these other other maps are it gives it gives um district 8 bay village and i can't believe you tried to cut me off in the middle of my statement it, it just shows I- exactly this, been, what how this whole process I'm, has been totally stacked against me unbelievable i thought you were going to be fair i i, I, I thought, thought you were going to be fair
4: Councillor Baker, you're under-
3: cutting me off in the middle of my statement. I'm sorry. I, I, you should be sorry. I'm
0: sorry. Um. So, th- those two parts, I think, just do a good job showing like, the tone and the tenor that they're going after her. And I'm going to keep reiterating I'm all for bowling bol- politicians. This is not a statement on the, ta- the tactic. This is on whose behalf and to what outcome they're trying to achieve. And of course, I didn't even play for you some of the more wild things. That Frank Baker said during these multiple hearings, during one of the hearings around October 17th, Frank Baker says, quote, they're telling us white people don't matter. In between those most recent two audios I played for you, Frank Baker took out his phone and played A Man Alone, a Frank Sinatra song to, as Sean Philip Carter described, a largely empty room. I wanted to play you audio of that. I just don't know if I'm allowed to play Frank Sinatra on this podcast without some sort of a content violation. I don't know. But Frank Baker's just unhinged overall personality, his handling of this, of bullying Liz Braden, of trying to use the parishes as a block, all, of course, culminated in his magnum opus. And let's hear it now. Frank Baker bringing the troubles. Back to Boston. And sorry, one just thing quick. It should be know that he's looking down this entire time, referencing a piece of paper on his desk. All right, here we go.
3: Chair, we're gonna we're gonna start a series of, of amendments here now. I believe some some colleagues have asked about um, submitting amendments. Totally ridiculous. And I think that's that's part of the process. Yeah. Okay. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair, for for acknowledging me here today. I got a call from a longtime friend this morning happens to be a Catholic priest. He told me to keep saying my prayers, God grant me the serenity. And uh, on a side note, he said that the, the clergy in Boston, they're all talking about this process right here. And, and they're viewing this exercise as an all-out assault on Catholic life in Boston. And it's not lost on them that the person that's leading the charge is a Protestant from Fermanagh. As the maps we have voted we on today up, indicate, excuse me, excuse as me. the maps we maps we are voting on today it?
0: indicate, we're, we're a brief recess. We're a brief recess. So they go to a recess. Ed Flynn comes back saying that Frank Baker was in violation of the rules. He pitches it back to Frank Baker for an apology, which he apologizes again. He read from a statement: "This was planned." And he then asked to continue his original statement in terms of his thoughts on redistricting. Ed Flynn instead says, that we're going to hear from Liz Braden to respond. Here is her response.
3: I do want to ask if Council Braden did want to, did want to make a statement. Um, I thought it was appropriate to recognize Council Braden. Council Braden, you have the floor.
4: Thank you, Mr. President. Yes, I am from Northern Ireland. Yes, I am, was raised Protestant, and yes. As a a Protestant from Northern Ireland, growing up in a rural community that was bisected by the Division of Ireland in 1922, and set up a, a Protestant state for a Protestant people that systematically discriminated against Catholics in housing, job opportunities, funding of education, access to health care, the ability to own, the, vote, the, vote, the, most, the greatest travesty in Northern Ireland's history was the systematic disenfranchisement of Catholic people in Northern Ireland. There was no one man, one vote. That's what the, the Northern Ireland civil rights movement was about in the 1960s. They were out in the streets protesting for one man, one vote, just like the folks here. African Americans in the United States. Discrimination in housing. I grew up with this. A kid, the trouble started in nineteen sixty nine. I was ten years old. Violence in the streets, people getting bombed out of their homes because they were Catholics, people get burned out of their homes because they were Protestants. An intercommunal strife all about religion. I came to I'm I'm a lesbian. I grew up in Northern Ireland. I was unable to live fully my life and be express myself. I came to Boston, this light on a hill, city on a hill. I married a nice Irish Catholic girl called Mary McCarthy. Grand woman she is too. some of my, I, I've committed my adult life to trying to fix the wrongs in the world. I left Northern Ireland. I came to Boston. I got involved in community. Some of my best friends in Boston, I, 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 I this is my home. And it is an insult. It is an insult to me to have a colleague in this city council, insinuate that I am discriminating against Catholics. That is not what's happening here. I'm standing up for the rights of our minority communities, Hispanic, Asian, Black, to have equal access to voting voting, and to have an equal opportunity to elect the candidate of their choice. And if that means annoying and upsetting Catholics, I'm very very sorry and I don't think that is reflective of Catholic values although I'm not a Catholic and leave some of my Catholic friends to speak to that. This is an insult. It is an absolute disgrace. We have work to do as councillors. We are under the Voting Rights Act. We have to try and create situations where minority communities are able to elect a candidate of their choice. And this has been a really difficult process. And there's people throwing hurt blockades, blockages and obstructions the whole way down the line. Either people not participating in the process, or people throwing roadblocks up all over the place. I, I, I'm just trying to do my job. I'm the district councillor for Alston Brighton. And people said, well, why'd she get the job? Like, oh, nothing's going to change. Well, not, nothing's going to change in Alston Brighton because we're out on this little island out there that if you had to change, you had to move us anywhere, we'd be in Brookline, Newton, or Watertown. Like, it's, we've got this, my, my great colleague here, Kenzie Bach, and I shared bits of 21. The next time we redistrict, District Eight's coming into District 9. There's a lot of change in this city. And hopefully some of it's for the good. We have, a, we have a, a, a growth, Mayor Walsh uh, said had a target of 65,000 new units of housing in the City of Boston. Like, it's something's got to give, you can't add 65,000 units of new housing and not expect that you're going to move some boundaries and create some new districts and move things around a little. So we're trying to work with data, we're trying to be work with the, with, with logic and rational thinking and we're trying to do the best for all of Boston. And I take it as a personal attack that anyone would doubt my sincerity and commitment to this process. I am doing this because I believe in civil rights. I believe in in voting rights. And I actually urge my, my, my colleagues Stand with me and vote this vote for this map. It's a defendable map. It's addressing some long-term, longstanding standing uh, disparities in our in our city, and I f- really feel that you know the, the moment is now. So thank you.
3: Thank you, thank you, Councillor Wrighton.
0: Yes, um, truly incredible. I can't add anything to that. And though we haven't actually gotten to what the new map looks like, I'm really going to leave it there, at least for now. I think Liz's speech there ties in a lot of the overarching theme of this episode was the different types of obstruction and strategies that the conservatives used to derail this process, never in good faith. And ultimately... I need more data on the certain precincts and how things were wedged to try to get a better understanding of the voter makeup, the racial makeup, the economic makeup of the new areas. Though overall, speaking in general, parts of South Boston were eventually split up. Parts of Southern Dorchester were also split up. So I will end it there. I will do a follow-up, I promise, that really goes into like what exact precincts did what and where. But... I think Liz's speech is a great way to end this part of this saga. So let's call it a day. Let's call it a night. Again, I will do, especially once, you know, the Excel nerds, and I say that with love, really get to like look at this data to try to figure out exactly how many new voters are where, how many are conservative, how many are moderate, how many are liberal, so on and so forth, and what does it mean for the next round of the Boston City Council elections for 2023. I think that almost in and of itself would be another full episode. So I want to thank you. I know I haven't done one of these in a while. I think I expressed this in my last episode that, you know, this format podcast thing is great for things like this. Like, let's look at the last two months and talk about what happened. And just gives me a chance to process it all one more time through my mind. And other things I just don't need 45 minutes to talk about. I can explain it in a tweet or a TikTok. But I'm certainly going to continue to do these type of podcast episodes. I'm definitely going to do one on Michelle Wu's one-year anniversary. I'm going to look back at her entire year, uh, The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. So you definitely will have that episode to look forward to at the end of this month. Again, we will go through the map. I'm going on vacation next week to Jamaica, and I really want to use some of that time to think about, like, The future of all my platforms and how I can grow, how I can expand in certain areas and cover other things. And so if you're listening to this podcast and you have any ideas or thoughts on things that you think is lacking in terms of coverage of Boston politics, please let me know. If you think there might be a good idea for like a weekly or biweekly podcast segment that I could do, something that I could do with video, because I've just happened to get a lot more success uh, with the video content. I'm sure that has to do with the medium and other things. But yeah, any ideas, of things you want to see me do or things you think I can do better, please let me know. I'm sure you have methods of getting in t- contact with me. My link tree is in the bio. But I really appreciate you listening. Again, the best way to support the show, like, subscribe, five stars, write a quick review if you haven't, share this video, I'm sorry, this podcast around. My Venmo is in the link tree, but I do these so sparingly now that nobody needs to feel guilty about sending me a couple bucks for a beer. But if you want to, you know, four or five bucks goes a long way with Miller High Life. And with that, take care and have a great rest of your day.